One day we had a bad basketball practice. The coach was pissed off at us. He literally made us run the cross country course as punishment. I was the worst player on the JV basketball team, but I came back first when we had to run three miles in cross country. And I just said, hey, maybe I should switch sports instead of fighting to be bad. And so I switched to running. And running seemed to be a place where an obsessive personality and an infinite amount of hard work paid some benefits. And it did for me. Uh, I don't think it's as quite as important now as I did 50 years ago, uh, but there's no replacement for hard work, is there? up everyone thank you so much for tuning in that was ambi burfoot that you just heard from a few seconds ago i'm your host mario fraioli and you are listening to the morning shakeout podcast okay ambi burfoot this one was a real thrill for me ambi is a legend and someone i've looked up to and admired since i first got my start in the sport over 20 years ago a native of connecticut ambi won the 1968 boston marathon when he was a senior at wesleyan university after his competitive running career ended, he went to work at Runner's World, where he spent 25 years as an editor before retiring in 2012. Ambi is still running strong and writing about running regularly as he nears the age of 75, and I just have so much respect for everything he's done and is still doing in the sport. There's a lot that we covered in this conversation. We talked about Ambi's competitive running career, how he got his start in the sport, and what it was like to win the Boston Marathon while he was still in college. He told me about his obsessive personality and the different forms it's taken over the course of his life. We discussed what he's up to now, his longevity as both a runner and a writer, and continuing to pursue your passions as you age. Ambi told me about his time at Runner's World. He shared his thoughts on the evolution of the running media landscape over the past two to three decades and a lot more. Before we get into it, I'd like to thank Tracksmith for their continued support of the morning shakeout. Tracksmith crafts performance running apparel, inspiring publications and distinct experiences that allow runners to indulge in the sports rich culture. Their summer collection reflects the season's optimism and provides tools for working hard on the roads and on the track. When it comes to running in hot, humid conditions, the technical details matter. Tracksmith's Strata Styles for training and racing is a summer staple. I pretty much live in the Strata T from June through October. It's crazy light and super breathable, and more often than not, I forget that I'm wearing it. Best of all, it doesn't smell after I've sweat in it for an hour or two. This is a great time to pick up something from the Strata Collection as we head into the heat of summer, and Tracksmith is offering new customers $15 off your first purchase of $75 or more. Just use the code MARIO15 when you check out at Tracksmith.com slash Mario. That's M-A-R-I-O-1-5 when you check out at Tracksmith.com slash Mario. This episode is also brought to you by Gooder. Man, I just love these sunglasses. Not only do they look good, they don't bounce, they don't slip, and they're polarized to protect your eyes. Best of all, they're super fun. They come in a number of awesome styles and colors. I'm personally a big fan of the OGs, and my favorite colors are a Ginger Soul and Mick and Keith's Midnight Ramble. 
Gooders are also super affordable, with most pairs coming in at just 25 to 35 bucks a piece, which makes them way more appealing than those expensive shades you're almost guaranteed to crush or lose. So if you'd like to support me in the podcast, treat yourself to a pair or two or maybe three of Gooders and head over to gooder.com slash Mario and get 15% off your entire order. That's G-O-O-D-R dot com slash Mario. That's M-A-R-I-O to get 15% off your order. Your face will thank you. Okay, that's all I've got for right now. Please enjoy this uninterrupted conversation with me and the inspiring Ambie Burfoot. Ambie Burfoot, this is a huge thrill for me. It is an honor to welcome you to the Morning Shakeout podcast. I'm so pleased to be here, Mario. Before I start asking you questions, I want to recall a story, and I wonder if you remember it. It was 2009. Our mutual friend, Larry Olson, had just passed away. I wrote an article about him. It was my first ever magazine feature for Running Times, and the timing was so eerie because he passed away, I think, the day it hit newsstands or the day before Mm. the layout of the piece almost looked like a a memorial, the way they had treated the photos and and everything. And I got an email from you just a a couple days later. You had mentioned how it was on the top of your your heap and you had been meaning to get to it. And once you heard the news of Larry's passing, you had sort of moved moved it up and thanked me for writing the piece and that it had come out in time, not that any of us knew that that he was going to pass away. And I believe that's probably the first time we've ever communicated. I was just starting to get into writing about running more seriously at that time. I knew who you were. I had no idea that you knew who I was or how you got my email address. I have no idea how that came to be, but that was such a huge thrill for me at that point of my life, that point of my career and for that reason and many more it's just a, it's a real thrill to be talking to you right now just about your life and your career you know what i primarily remember is larry himself i i, I can picture larry from racing him often in the 60s and early mm-hmm. 70s and that distinctive form that he had in one of his arms maybe his left arm he had his elbow bent his uh wrist bent way down as he ran and and he was just one of the guttiest and 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 grittiest runners i knew from that time very close to the top but not quite at the top so he didn't get a lot of recognition uh but i've always uh, been a fan uh, of those who don't win a lot of races but are always there running as hard as they can. And so I appreciated every article that was written about a Larry Olson or any runner like him. And he was pretty competitive into his 60s. He wasn't one of those guys who won major marathons, but he was pretty fast back in his day. I think he ran a 218 marathon or somewhere around that. But he was competitive into his 40s, into his 50s, and even into his 60s right before he passed away and had this just longevity to him, which was really impressive. And after that initial email exchange, I was just looking back at this before we got on to record. Now, we went back and forth for a little while because you were trying to compile some stats about him for, I think it was like a 100,000 mile club. And then there was a subset of runners who had run a sub three hour marathon. I think it was 
five decades in a row, maybe six decades in a row, and you needed to verify a lot of that. And as I was going through this this email thread, it was really instructive for me at the time because you were giving me tips on how to find some of this information, some of it related to his his passing and possible follow-up articles, but then also for digging up these stats that you were looking for to see if he could be put in the in these clubs. And I have to thank you for that because... I hadn't really given it much thought until recently, but that was very formative for me as I was just kind of learning the ropes of this this whole writing business. Uh, I'm sure today you could give me many, many lessons about how to find data about various people and, <laughs> and various things in, in the running world. I've always been a serious amateur at it. Uh, I don't really know Excel or spreadsheets. Uh, just in the last day or two, I've been corresponding between Camille Heron and uh, a few people out there who keep much better data than I do for running streaks and 70,000 miles and 100,000 miles. And uh, Camille is hoping to be, if not the youngest ever to reach 100,000 miles, to be the first woman to reach it. She's going to hit it in about a year at about 40 years and five months old. All right. Well, I've got a lot that I want to talk to you about and questions that I want to ask, but I'm going to get my most selfish one out of the way first. How can I be just like you when I grow up? <laughs> you don't want to be just like me when you grow up. Nobody wants to be just like me when they, they grow up. I can put my wife and kids <laughs> onto that. Uh, I'm, uh, I'll be 75 in a uh, month. I was born the same day and year as President Bill Clinton, so I consider myself an uber-boomer of his generation. And like everybody else I know, I'm still trying to figure out who and what I want to be when I grow up. You know, the world is so big now, it looks like there are lots of opportunities on the one hand, and on the other hand, I think I should... Uh, retire, work less, uh, enjoy life more, run and hang out with my friends more, but I, I do get pulled back to the computer quite a bit each day, and I keep looking for those things that interest me. These days, of course, it's older runners like myself who are primarily of interest, but, but so is everybody else. Cole Hawker, how did he finish off that 1,500 meters at the Olympic trials? I've never seen anything that wild. I, I ask that question and I frame it that way because from the outside looking in, I see what you're doing at almost the age of 75. You're still running at your age, not as much as you were when you were younger, but still running consistently. You had mentioned to me over email how you're going to run Hood to Coast this year, also the Boston Marathon. I read your work regularly. I just linked off to a piece that you did in Podium Runner not that long ago. And here I am knocking on the door of 40 next year. And I'm like, I this is what I want to be doing for the next 35 years. So I'm going to selfishly use this opportunity to learn from Ambi and understand how I can have longevity both as a runner and a writer on the sport. Well, I think what you're a piece of what you're referring to is probably the fact that I consider myself unbelievably lucky. I mean, I won the Boston Marathon when I was 21, I guess. I barely remember my age at that time. And not too many years later, 
uh, the young publisher of Runner's World magazine called me up and said, how would you like to be our East Coast editor? And I said, yeah, are you kidding? Do you pay for that job? Uh, and he did, and it was a real job. And I spent 20 years at, at Runner's World uh, during the best 20 years that I think running will ever see because it was the boom years. And it started with Bill and Frank and Joni and people like that. And it ended with the incredible East African wave of astonishing performances. And early 2000s, we had Alan Webb, Ryan Hall, uh, Dathan, I almost forgot Dathan, Ritzenhine. There were just so many exciting things that happened in the 20 years I was at Runner's World. The magazine was growing. It was successful. It welcomed all the new women subscribers in the 1990s, which was a huge part of the magazine's success. And then I kind of happened to step off the stage at the time when magazine journalism got really difficult because nobody can quite figure out now how the internet affects it all and especially the economics of magazines and whether they belong in print or on the web or as newsletters or, or, or what. So I'm lucky not to have to be there now fighting those things. I went to monthly budget meetings for 20 years and most of the time the news was good news uh, from the accountants who looked over our shoulders and so uh, as I said I think I was just in the right place at the right time. I do want to talk about how media particularly in the running space has evolved over the last 20-30 years or so but I want to go back to something you just said a little while ago and that was you're still trying to figure out what you want to be when you grow up and you're knocking on the door of 75 years old. What do you mean by that? And how do you, how do you work with that on a, on a daily basis? Uh, it's funny. I just spent the uh, morning sending out a panicked email to my friends and yours, uh, David Epstein, Michael Joyner, Alex Hutchinson, Christy Ashwanden, et cetera, saying, Guys, how do you deal with this world? How do you deal with the eternal feeling that you're falling farther behind every day? There's no keeping up. We all have this guilty sense that we're spending our time on the wrong project and we should be doing the other one. We all feel that we're not organized enough. We all kind of feel that we're not focused on what's important, but in my case, I haven't figured out what's important, and I don't know if anyone else has. So uh, I think it's the new media blitz. It is overwhelming. Uh, I am not terribly good at it, but I'm good enough to see that it's overwhelming. And uh, I'm trying to decide whether I want to keep up with it on a more or less daily basis or whether I should slow down and let it go. I'll have to let it go at some point and, and maybe just write reflective essays about my years in running and what, if anything, I have learned. About six months ago, I actually started a, a running memoir that I never intended to start. I didn't know that I was writing a running memoir. I just started putting down various stories from my life, some of which have been published, like how I won the Boston Marathon, and many of which have never 
been written up in any way. And I've let that project go for three or four months now, and I kind of feel that I want to get back to it. But uh, I have to find the right balance to do that, just like everyone looking for balance in their life and work. Why haven't you slowed down? Yeah, that's a really good question. I'm obsessive at heart, uh, Mario. Um, I, I always have been. I uh, When I started running... Well, we'll do the brief overview of my, my youth sports. Uh, I noted to you that I started out with a father who was a YMCA director type. So I did all the sports when I was young. I got very skilled at sports because I was obsessive and I practiced hard. I could shoot basketball with both hands, not just my right hand and so on and so forth. And of course, I thought I was going to become a famous professional athlete of some kind. And then I got to high school, and lo and behold, I found out it wasn't skill that counted. It was power, strength, speed, muscle, all things that I didn't have that you really needed at the higher levels of sport. So I ended up, one day we had a bad basketball practice. The coach was pissed off at us. He literally made us run the cross-country course as punishment. I was the worst player on the JV basketball team, but I came back first when we had to run three miles in cross country, and I just said, hey, maybe I should switch sports instead of fighting to be bad. And so I switched to running, and running seemed to be a place where an obsessive personality and an infinite amount of hard work paid some benefits, and it did for me. Uh, I don't think it's... Quite as important now as I did 50 years ago, uh, but there's no replacement for hard work, is there? Have you been able to curb that obsessiveness at all, or has it just shifted into different places over the course of your life? Yeah, it has shifted. I've certainly curbed it in running competitiveness. I, mm -hmm. I've run for the last 45 years, I guess, I've run 20 to 25 miles a week. Uh, which is not a heck of a lot. I am not very fast. I wish I were, but I'm not. That's just where I am now. Uh, I am an exercise addict, and I won't, you know, I don't need to cop out from that. Uh, when I'm not running, I'm sitting on my exercise bicycle at home, pedaling away very slowly, uh, but that's where I read newspapers and magazines and scientific journal articles because I just like movement. I like walking. I recognize that walking lies ahead of me as a major exercise outlet, and I'll do uh, a lot more walking in the years to come. But I think since I got into runner's world and, and got into the reporting on the sport and writing about the sport, that's where the obsessive part of my uh, personality has taken root and where I need to, for my own life, health, and benefit, find a little bit more balance going forward, perhaps. Let's do a little thought experiment. Where do you shift it from here if you do <laughs> scale back what you're doing from a writing and reporting standpoint? Uh, as I said, I think the shift would be away from obsessive following of the daily results and who's hot today and who's not and who got busted and who didn't. And worse than who got busted is trying to figure out whether they should have or shouldn't have, which 
none of us really know, although we may have strong opinions. Uh, I suspect I'm going to let that stuff slide uh, pretty soon and, and work on more reflective things. I think essay writing is, is a great way to go, and I've had lots of experiences in, in running, some of which parallel into other areas of life. I wouldn't claim that all do. But some do, and uh, I've got stories to tell. Uh, at once, I didn't think I had many, but when I started cataloging them, they seemed to uh, keep coming into mind. So I think I'll explore that with more reflective essays. How has your family dealt with your obsessive personality? Have they just accepted it at this point that... Ambie's going to get his 20 to 25 miles a weekend. He's going to ride his exercise bike. He's going to plop himself in front of the computer and write and communicate with people, even though he doesn't probably have to at, at this point. Or maybe you do for some internal reason, but they've just accepted this is who you are, this is what you do, and this is what keeps you going. Yeah, I think the family questions are very, very important. And um, my family is quite a quite uh, accepting. My son is as obsessive as I am, except he goes to the gym and lifts weight. Um, he's twice as wide around as I am, uh, but just as obsessive in his uh, gym training and his computer programming and math thinking. He's a guy who sits around and math equations pop into his head, which is something I do not understand, but he does it. My daughter is completely non-obsessive uh, in most ways. She's uh, what Barack Obama would have called an urban organizer, I think, a fantastic person working on the streets of the very small but impacted city of New London, Connecticut, with a large uh, Latin and, and black community uh, doing great work in out-of-the-school-system education with youth. Uh, my wife is a exerciser herself. She was a two, not a two, uh, a 3.30 marathoner 30 years ago when she was exercising hard, and now she's your typical jogger and yoga person. Uh, they've learned that there are times of the day when I just cut out and have to do my thing, and they do seem to be accepting of it. Uh, I think perhaps I'm less, less accepting myself than they are in some ways, which is what you and I have been talking about. But nonetheless, it's where my mind and body go uh, when I'm looking for some release. Do you feel at all less energetic, less curious, less interested in things than when you were younger? Are you, or are you just as, as curious and energetic and interested in, in the things that you enjoy at the age of 74, almost 75? I'm absolutely as, as curious as I have ever been. I'm curious and interested in quite a wide range of topics. However, there's none of them other than distance running that I've dived into deeply. And, you know, I can't say that I have another hobby, whether it's uh, crossword puzzles or chess or anything else. My hobby is trying to understand running in runners uh, and research about us better. 
But I'm curious about everything, especially uh, environment and energy and economics and urban uh, design and where are our cities going at this time when there are so many different forces uh, coming together, imploding in the middle of our, our cities? I'm intensely curious about that. You did use the word energy, and I won't claim that I have the energy at 75 that I did at 35. Uh, I wish I did. Most days I take a nap, so uh, I let myself do that. And... Um, I, I try to spend my energy wisely, but I, uh, I'm still trying to get better at it, too. How do you maintain that at your age and keep all of that going? Because I think a lot of people, many people that I know, as they get older, they just don't care as much or they're not as engaged or they're just less willing to do things for various reasons, but you're still very vibrant and still very much kind of getting after all of these different things in your life, despite the fact that, you know, you, you are aging and have slowed down a little bit. I think the, my answer to that is going to be a bit of a cop out. I I think I'm going to say that that's a little bit genetic. There's something in my body uh, below the neck or above that is just wired to enjoy movement. And I'm not someone who will run around and yell about runner's high and psychedelia or any of those things. I just feel good when I'm running, or if I don't always feel good when I'm running, I certainly feel good afterwards. There's certainly a, a big payoff. So uh, uh, I stay out there in one form or another. I often say when I'm talking to groups uh, that my father in retirement enjoyed sitting in a rocking chair on the back porch with a glass of lemonade looking into the sunset. And I enjoy all of those things and maybe a slightly stronger drink than lemonade. But I also want to be able to walk and run up and down the beach into the sunset and not just sit there in the rocking chair. So I, I'm just wired for movement, I think. Uh, I'm not going to take any credit for it. I'm not going to tell anyone I'm tougher or more disciplined than they are. I just am doing what feels good to me. Do you fear the day that you're not able to move as well as you would like and what that may signify to you? Intensely. I, I worry about that all the time. I cannot imagine having something happen, whether it's a disease or an accident that, let's say, puts me in a wheelchair and, and, and leaves me there. I, I literally cannot imagine that life. Uh, one, of my, one of the things I'm very curious about and don't read enough about is the lack of alternatives that we had to have at a certain point in life in different parts of this country as to what our choices or alternatives are. And I'm not happy about the fact that those seem to be uh, limited in many places. But um, despite the fears, and, you know, I, I, I don't run in fear. I feel good while I'm running, but I, I'm 75, and people younger and older than Larry Olson are gone. And, uh, you know, my dear friend and college roommate Jeff Galloway had a pretty serious heart attack. Earlier this year, I have a chronic heart condition that 
hasn't done anything to me so far, except perhaps make me slower, uh, but it's there and it's not a great condition to have. So it's, it's too easy when you get into your 70s to list all of your health ailments and to worry about them, but there's no, uh, there's no running away from them. Well, I appreciate that. It's very instructive and inspiring to someone like me, because as I said earlier in this conversation, I want to be like you when I grow up. I want to be moving well at the age of 75. I hope that I'm still as engaged with the sport and writing about it much in the same way that you are. So I, I really thank you for sharing all of that. Yeah, you know, one of the things I'm proudest of, this is very funny, but it's real. And my friends will tell you, I have a number of friends my age who are still out there running and faster than I am. But when they run, they're tilted. I mean, their bodies are not in great shape and they're listing to the left or listing to the right or whatever. When I run, I'm still straight. I'm still upright. Uh, I, you know, I don't have any pop or spring from the road. My foot goes down and it wants to stay there. It takes an effort to lift the next one. Uh, but at least I'm, uh, I'm doing enough something right or I'm lucky enough so that I'm staying uh, vertical while I run. To shift gears a little bit, one thing that's interesting to me is you live in the same place where you grew up, Mystic, Connecticut, and you're still running some 60 years after you first got started. And I imagine you're running many of the same routes that you've been running your entire life. How has your relationship to the place changed, if at all? My, you're absolutely right uh, about everything you have just said. I live a half a mile off of the 10-mile course that I ran every single morning when I was in college, when I was doing 120 a week or, or, or whatever. And on those occasions when I feel like running that 10-mile course, it's just around the corner and I can do it and it will take me 50 to 60% longer than it did uh, when I was 20. Uh, but that's the nature of the beast. I have grown fonder over the years to the the local environment where I run especially I grew up uh, a middle very very middle class kid uh, at a beach community that is now entirely exclusive and everything costs a million dollars and it's only lawyers and doctors who live there but when I grew up there it was uh, it was a place that a middle-class family could afford to uh, live, and it's a three-mile flat loop with water on uh, three sides. It's, it's a peninsula, and so I've run that loop thousands of times, and today I have to drive a couple of miles to get to the loop and run it, and I hate driving before I run. I feel that I should go out the front door and not get in the car. But I will often make the drive because the loop is so familiar and brings back so many memories and feels so good. And uh, I think there's something in many of us that appreciate running on the edge of water. Water feels cool and refreshing. And indeed, every morning when I run that loop now, I dive in the water and swim afterwards so it is cool and refreshing. Uh, so the environment is, is very important, it's very familiar, it brings back so much and uh, adds, a lot, adds a lot to my run. I hasten to add that everywhere I've lived I've found runs like that and every runner I know finds the best running routes 
parks, trails, or whatever in their area because we appreciate the same things and we look for the same things. At this point of your life, because of where you are, does it feel on some level like you're returning to your roots or you've returned to your roots and that's where you'll stay planted from here on out? I have returned to my roots. I thought that after Runner's World, I might perhaps end up in a walkable city, a Portland, Oregon type place, because I do love modest sized walkable cities. But the fact is that not just that this is my roots, but my sister lives here, my brother lives here, we're going to grow old together. Uh, my wife did, have, did not have a strong attachment to another place, and she likes my family, so she's doing pretty well here, although it's been a big big adjustment for her. It took taken much longer than we thought it would to adjust to a new place. Uh, but it is familiar to me. It is home. I was away for 30 years at Runner's World, so it's not like I know everybody here or they know me, but there are enough old friends and old haunts and good people who live here to make it the right place for us. Take me back to your beginnings in the sport. You mentioned at the beginning of this conversation how once you got to, I believe it was, it was middle school, you didn't have the, the speed and power necessary to play some of those other sports. How did running come into the picture for you? Well, I started running because uh, I could beat the other basketball players at it in that cross-country punishment routine that was meted out to us. And I decided to go out for the team the next fall and by complete random luck, the coach of my high school team was John J. Kelly, who was the 57 Boston Marathon winner, a two-time U.S. Olympic marathoner, eight-time U.S. national marathon champion, and unequivocally the best American distance runner of the 50s and early 60s. And that was absolutely the very least of what the man was to me because uh, he did not approach running as something where he placed himself in a guru position. He never read me the Ten Commandments of running. He almost never told me anything about how to run. He simply set a personal example that I found utterly inviting and entrancing and something that I wanted to emulate. And the reasons are not just the running. Of course, I wanted to become a great runner like he was. But he was an environmentalist in the 1950s when people in the U.S. were all about bigger and faster and build, build, build. He uh, was an organic gardener in the 1950s when, trust me, nobody in this country knew what organic gardening was, and he had an organic garden. And the first time I saw his compost heap full of worms, I was revolted because I'd never seen so many worms in one place. And he loved literature, and he loved poetry and folk music, and he was the biggest Bob Dylan fan in the world, even though he wasn't really of the Bob Dylan generation. So I just found so much that I wanted to mimic, for lack of a better word, in his example. And uh, that's what I did. Uh, he ran, and he ran quite a bit at that time. And I thought, okay, I'll run more than he did. 
Uh, he was probably an 80-mile-a-week guy in the 50s and 60s, which was a lot. And so I was, you know, I just aimed for that. And then after a couple of years in college, I got stronger, and I could do 100, 110, 120. And so I was running 110 to 120 miles in college in the mid-60s, which, aside from perhaps Jerry Lindgren, about whom we only have mythic legend, I don't think anyone was running more than me at that point. That's really fascinating. And that was my obsession. You know, I I could see that running a lot paid off. Uh, I didn't know then that there was almost like the speed and power in basketball, that there was a talent piece of it that I didn't really have at the Olympic level, but certainly uh, I had success doing what I did. Yeah, that's what really jumped out to me about that story was just the obsessiveness of it. Well, if he's running 80 miles per week, I'm just going to run more than him, irregardless of the fact that he's Boston Marathon champion, Olympian, has this very robust running resume. I'm just going to I'm just going to do more. And I guess I'm I'm curious about two things. One, where do you think that comes from? And two, were there other areas of your life at the time as a young kid where you were equally as obsessed or was it just running at that stage of your life? I think I was a shy, introverted kid, which is probably how a whole lot of us describe Mm -hmm. ourselves in junior high and high school. I was uh, more or less good at everything I tried, which is to say I was a good athlete and I was a good student but I wasn't the best athlete and I wasn't a valedictorian or anything like that. And Kelly just gave me an example. He was a mentor. You know, you get lucky in life if you have a mentor and you're really close to a, a mentor and you learn from him, not by his scripture, but by his personal example. With Kelly, Kelly was the most humble person in the world. He never talked about uh, his running, he always talked about the individual who he was having a conversation about, and he asked people about their their poetry and their drama work and their singing and guitar and everything else, and uh, never talked about himself. And he just seemed the ideal human being to, to me. Uh, he was Irish, he was a storyteller, uh, the stories were astonishing. My family was a sort of typical, quiet, closed-up New England family. Nobody hugged each other. Nobody said, I love you. Uh, we were just, you know, after after mealtime in the evening, the three kids, we all went up to our rooms and studied. And that was family life. So I I wanted something that I could be good at, and I and I really perceived at an early age that running was 100%, this was my perception then, that running was 100% a discipline, determination, and effort uh, sport. And I would be damned if I was going to let anybody try harder than I tried. And so I just thought that means run more than anybody else, and so that's what I did. Were you pretty competitive as a kid as well? 
I don't think so. I don't even think in a funny way that I'm terribly competitive now. Certainly when I was running against people, whether it was Larry Olson or John Vitale or anybody we ran against back in the old days, we were all best of friends because we were a tight little circle of, of people with this one passion that we shared. We were just absolutely the best of friends. I'm one of those people who can more or less say I've never met anyone who I don't like. But when the gun went off, it was time to do your business. And when the gun went off, if you had been running a hundred miles a week for the last year or so, it sort of seemed like you ought to put yourself out there in the hot spot and see how far and how fast you could go. And I, that's what I did. I never ran against my competitors. I ran against myself. I wanted to see what I could get out of myself. And I could finish fifth and set a personal record and be absolutely thrilled because I knew that I had gotten the most out of myself. And I could finish first and have an off day and not be happy with myself because first didn't mean anything if I hadn't done what I thought I should do on the day. At risk of skipping over too much, but fast forwarding several years when you put competitive running in the rearview mirror as far as the amount of time that you dedicated to training and that obsessiveness part of it, what was behind that decision? Why did you make that shift? I, I ran hard from the mid-60s through 1976, and, and 1976 I was very fit and I finished 10th in the Olympic marathon trials and in the middle of the race had visions of sneaking into the third spot. We all knew that Shorter and Rogers would be one two, so it was just the race for third place, uh, which was, that was the race that Don Cardon got third. But, um, you know, I didn't pull it together the last uh, 10 miles and a few people went by me and I finished 10th. And several months later, I ran the Ocean State Marathon in Newport and had a very bad day and hit the wall, really hit the wall for, I think, the only time in my life. And after that, I just kind of thought, Amby, grow up. You're supposed to be doing something else in life. Uh, I don't know what it is, and I certainly didn't know what it was. But you're supposed to be doing something else, so look around and see if you can find what that is and scale back the running and move on with family and some kind of career. Let's go back to high school. You're obsessed with the sport. You have a mentor in Johnny Kelly. You're showing some promise in the sport. You went to Wesleyan where you ran with the aforementioned Bill Rogers and also Jeff Galloway. Talk to me about that transition to college and what running was like just at that time. Um, this is the 1960s. Kids aren't running nearly as fast as they are now. There wasn't this pressure to get a scholarship and go run at a big school or turn pro out of high school. I'd love to just understand your sort of relationship with the sport at the time and how you were thinking about it for yourself as you entered college. Well, as I entered college, uh, I had had a moderately successful high school running career, but, you know, I had just started, so I hadn't done a lot. 
But I had a full head of steam. There was nothing I wanted to do more than to run more and, and run better. Uh, I got to Wesleyan, which is a, com- is a completely non-athletic, totally academic school. And I had no idea what to expect. And the several things that I found included a coach who was totally lovable and totally supportive and was great for four years with me. And the complete opposite of John Kelly. He had never run more than 55 yards in his life. He was an indoor hurdler in the Big Ten at Michigan and then played first base during baseball's outdoor season and almost made it to the Detroit Tigers system. And the first time I walked into his office, he was chewing tobacco and he had a spittoon across the office and he spit tobacco into his spittoon, which was the most revolting thing I could possibly imagine. Secondly, Jeff Galloway was there. I didn't know who Jeff was. Nobody knew who Jeff was, but Jeff was on fire to see how much running he could do. He was a stronger runner than me. He could bear up under harder workouts and uh, harder paces, intensities than I could because I was just so damn skinny. Um, but I could hang with him on the endurance side of stuff. So we did a ton of things together. And the third person there was an old New England legend named Dr. Uh, Charlie Robbins, who ran barefoot in the uh, 1960s, uh, wore khaki pants in the wintertime, ran about six miles a week. Uh, but on Wednesday afternoons, he came to our cross-country practice at Wesleyan rather than go golfing with his doctor buddies, and he could fly. He had 0% body fat. He could go up the ropes in the corner of our gymnasium like I couldn't and nobody else could. He had been about a 50-minute 10-miler on the New England road racing scene. I mean, he could fly, and he was now probably in his mid-40s, which was old, but he was full of uh, inspiration and, and stories and was just a wild character to have around. And in the 60s, that's, that's what running was. Everybody was a wild character. I mean, I think runners are very distinctive now. But in the 60s, we came from all various corners and parts of life and backgrounds and uh, it was a wild, motley, fun-loving, hard-working group. I remember reading about you, and you may have mentioned it to me in some previous correspondence, but at some point of your collegiate career, I believe it was indoors, you ran a pretty fast two miles, like 840, 45, something like that. And this was documented somewhere. I remember reading it. It had to be an article or a book, but you stopped doing speed work and you just ran a lot over the wintertime. Sounds like you were already running a lot anyway, and then jumped in a race two mile and seemingly surprised yourself and everyone else with an 840 something two mile. Can you expound upon that a little bit? So I remember reading that story and I remember noting myself, if I ever get the opportunity, I want to ask Amby about that because I remember reading it at the time I was, I think I was just like burned out on speed work and I was like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to run more. It worked for, if it worked for someone like Amby Burfoot, it could definitely, you know, work for me. Um, and I just, I'd love to get a little color commentary on that from you while I have the opportunity. Yeah, I'll summarize the the whole story quickly from good to unbelievable to ugly. So I had finished my senior year of cross-country at Wesleyan, 
And in both my junior and senior years, I finished uh, sixth in what would now be called the NCAA Division I Cross-Country Championship. So that was pretty good for a skinny little kid from a small college in New England. And uh, NCAA Cross-Country was, what, first or second week of November, and after the season was over, I thought I deserved uh, a period of easy running. So for the next two months, I basically did all my running at seven-minute pace. It was winter. We were wearing cotton sweats in the snow and the sleet and the rain, and I was just out running easy miles on the hills and roads around Wesleyan. And then in mid-January, I got into this track meet in Boston on the boards, and there were six of us in January 1968 in the race, and probably the other six were all headed to the Olympic Games in the 5,000 meter or something. Anyway, two of them tripped and fell on the first curve, and I had to hurdle over them, and that left me on the heels of these Olympians. And I just followed them around the boards for 22 or 24 laps, whatever it was, and, and ran an 8.45, which was probably 20 seconds faster than I thought I could run. And I finished that race, and I was delirious with joy. I thought my time as a track runner had finally arrived. The thought process was, oh, my God, 8.45 and not a bit of speed work. If I just start sharpening for the rest of the indoor season, who knows where I'm going to end up. So I started running speed work the next week, and I had about three or four more races that indoor season, uh, races that were... Uh, uh, abetted supposedly by speed work and of course I got slower every single week <laughs> week after week I added five seconds to my time so by the time I got to the NCA indoor meet which was the last one of the season I line up with Jerry Lindgren and Jim Ryan and whoever else was in the field and ran like a 905 some something horrendous and uh that's when I really, really learned that speed work or not, or too much speed work did not agree with me. It was just not what worked for me. I had to find my own uh, ratio, my own intensity, and I should have stuck with what had worked in January rather than uh, thinking that I was going to get fast as a track runner because I totally sucked as a track runner all of my life. The other parts of the Lindgren and Ryan story is uh, sometimes people ask me, wow, how good were you? You won the Boston Marathon in 1968. Why didn't you make it to the Olympics? Because I did never make it to the Olympics. And I finally figured out many years later that my answer to that story is when you go to a starting line with Jim Ryan and Jerry Lindgren, you find out that there's a whole nother level of talent uh, of a dimension that you've never, ever imagined. And no matter how many 120-mile training weeks you've done, you don't run with Jerry Lindgren and Jim Ryan unless you're also at their talent level, and almost nobody is. It makes me think about what you said earlier about going into school and realizing that you know it took power, speed, and and skill to really be able to perform in those sports. And I think the same principle applies 
when you're racing guys like Jerry Lindgren and Jim Ryan, who, who at the time were the best in the world at what they did. It's totally analogous, and you're absolutely right. I didn't realize that in the 60s when I thought the only thing that mattered was counting up miles, but I certainly learned through my career in competitive racing that there were people with talent, and hey, I must have some talent. I ran pretty well, but there are other levels of talent, and and it's very hard to beat the guys at the highest levels of talent. You ran and won that 1968 Boston Marathon during your senior year at Wesleyan. Was that your first marathon? How were you able to get into the field at the time? Because nowadays, it's not common at all for collegiate runners to be running marathons, much less Boston and contending for the win. So I'd love to try and understand that a little bit more. Well, since Kelly was was my mentor... Uh, all my life. I mean, he's gone now, and I still consider him my mentor and, and the person whose uh, life I would most like to emulate. Since he was a marathoner, I, I wanted to run a marathon almost from day one uh, in his image. Of course, I didn't do that in high school, but once I got to college, it, there was a little bit more of an open door. It wasn't like I was a scholarship athlete. I was a academic athlete and the the coach you know i did what the coach said 99 percent of the time except on boston marathon day without telling him my freshman year which was 1965 i uh went to the boston marathon so i ran my first in 1965 and had never run anywhere near 26 miles before so i started at a comfortable pace and felt great the whole time and kept asking people, where's Heartbreak Hill? Where's Heartbreak Hill? Because I assumed it was at least the equivalent of Mount Everest from all the stories I had read. And nobody knew where it was until I was on the other side of it. And someone said, oh, you just passed it a half mile ago. And I was like, that was nothing. This Boston Marathon is no big deal. And I hesitate to add that every year that I've run Boston since then, Heartbreak Hill has been there, much bigger and uh, more difficult than it was the first year. But that's expectations for you. So I ran 235 uh, my first year at uh, Boston. I missed the next year because I had a fracture in my foot. In 67, which was a horrible weather day, which of course was good for running well, I think I ran 222 and finished 17th because that's the number I wore in 68 and then in 68 which was an Olympic year which meant that Boston was not a strong field the the smart and talented runners were saving themselves for the Olympic trials later in the year but I was a New Englander I was a Kelly disciple and the Boston Marathon loomed just as important to me as the Olympics and so I went to Boston and was lucky to, enough to have the best racing day of my life on and a fairly important uh, competition day. Did you have designs on trying to win it going into that race, having finished 17th the year before, but also knowing it wasn't going to be as stacked because it was an Olympic year? Uh, I told two people that I thought I could win. Uh, that was my brother and, and one friend. And, and the reason I thought I could win the race was not just what you ju said, 
but also I'd had a tremendous year of running in 67 and 68. And for some reason in 1968, about two weeks before the Boston Marathon, I hit the one and only period of my life when my running was in a flow state, to use the terms of that unpronounceable uh, writer psychologist from Chicago. And every day for two weeks, I would go out and run and run a minute per mile faster than I was trying to. It just happened. It was just there. And so I thought that if I could capture that on race day, that maybe good things would happen. And I was fortunate enough so that the flow state continued on race state. I felt absolutely effortless through the first half of the race and then extended a ton of effort in the second half of the race, uh, but with a happy outcome. Take me back to that day. What were some of the feelings that you were experiencing during the race when you were in that flow state and then afterward when you were working quite a bit harder the second half, but knowing that you were near the front and could potentially pull it off? Sure. So in in those days, we had no uh, digital watches on our wrist. We didn't really know what pace we were running. The Boston checkpoints were not at 5K and 10K and 15K or miles, but at bizarre checkpoints on the road. It would The sign would say 22 and three-quarter miles to go. What are you going to do with that? Or it would say 11 and seven-eighths miles to go. What are you going to do with that? So you ran the race competitively at Boston. You ran against the, the other runners. There was a pack of about a dozen of us together for the first half of the race, including a handful of Americans and a smattering of Mexicans and Finns and a few others. And I, it sounds ridiculous, but my memory is I literally felt like I was jogging through 10 miles and through Wellesley, through 13, 14 miles. And in the middle of the race, I thought, what the heck? There's a dozen of us here. I might as well do a little surge and see if I, one or two of them will drop away. So I did a very modest feeling quarter mile surge and looked around and there was nobody left except for one other runner still with me. And that was the last thing I, in the world I wanted. I wanted the security of a pack. I didn't want to have to race 13 miles against one other guy, mano a mano, to see who would win the Boston Marathon and who would finish second. And worse still, the other runner and I knew each other pretty well, and we both knew that he was a faster finisher than I was. He was a much better miler, six-miler even, than me. So every mile that he stayed with me increased the chances that he was going to win the race. Uh, Consequently, I had to absolutely kill myself on, on the Newton Hills, and one after the next, I just ran myself to shreds going up the Newton Hills, and he just stayed right on my shoulder. I remember the top of Heartbreak Hill where I had you know, the race was over for me. I had given 100% by the top of Heartbreak Hill. I literally remember a moment when my body sort of sagged from the fatigue of it all, the way you let yourself go when you hit a finish line in a race. And somehow I picked it up and kept going. 
And uh, the other runner, Bill Clark, the, the Marine, who's a wonderful, wonderful friend, cramped up on the downhills. As every Boston runner knows, the downhills are worse than the uphills. His quads cramped on the downhills. So what can I say? It, it almost wasn't so much that I won the Boston Marathon as he wasn't able to run his race the last five miles on the downhills. So I staggered to the finish and truly collapsed like a wet noodle into the arms of Jock Semple, who was a, a friend, and changed my life. Do you remember coming down Boylston Street, heading to the finish line in that state of just complete exhaustion or, or is it still all a blur to you? Or if, or if you really think about it, can you remember what that felt like in the moment? It's a little of both, Mario. Much of it is a blur, of course, and, and there has been a little bit of video, very little through the years that I've seen. And I definitely look like I'm flapping and flogging in the final stretch on, uh, it was in front of the Prudential on the then called Ring Road, but the same as Boylston. And uh, I was spent. I mean, I, I had nothing left. It was a uh, warm day. I won't say hot, but it was high, su- high 70s and sunny. Of course, there was no fluid on the course then. We were all completely dehydrated. I happened to be in a uh, physiological experiment where Dr. Dave Costell weighed me on the start line and weighed me on the finish line. And I was 9% lighter, uh, 9 wow. pounds lighter on, on the finish line. So I was completely dehydrated. So was everybody else, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, and I later concluded that my primary ability as a marathoner was that I'm good in the heat and I can keep running when I'm dehydrated. And again, that's not a talent that, that I worked on. That was some gift I was, I was given. Um, but it was, a, it was a tough, tough race. How did that result in accomplishment change your own view of yourself as a runner at the time? Um, let me think. I mean... What it does is winning the Boston Marathon is a, is a title that you carry with you for the rest of life because runners around the world and non-runners around the world know the Boston Marathon. And nobody cares if you win a Thanksgiving Day race in Connecticut, which I did many times. Nobody cares if you're editor of Runner's World magazine because... Not everybody knows about Runner's World magazine, but kind of everybody knows about the Boston Marathon. And it sounds like a big deal to have won the Boston Marathon. So uh, I don't diminish it. I don't think it's anything special. But I do feel very lucky and a little bit proud that I am in that small group who can call themselves Boston Marathon winners. I don't wear it on my lapel when I walk down the streets of Mystic and I don't tell people about it. Others always introduce me that way and I'm happy enough to talk about it. I'm not, I'm not embarrassed to have won the Boston Marathon, but uh, it was just an extremely lucky day that I worked extremely hard for and I was fortunate enough for things to come together. Did that victory open up other opportunities for you, whether it was in the 
Board of Running or elsewhere? Well, it got me a couple of invitations to international road races uh, in Canada and then in Fukuoka, Japan, the, the same year in 1968. And, and of course, it was, a, it was a big door opener at Runner's World, which was clearly the other major lucky break of my life to be able to spend 20 years of my career at a, uh, at a magazine, which was a real magazine and actually made money and actually paid us salaries. And today I actually have a pension from Runner's World magazine. And I think pension is a, world that, a word that not a lot of people understand anymore. But believe me, when you're getting one, it's a pretty nice thing. So uh, Boston, you know, winning the Boston Marathon opens doors. It no doubt opens a lot more doors now and a lot more money now. But uh, who's going to look back and be bitter about money that I didn't make from winning the Boston Marathon? Not me. Uh, this is a case where I can choose and do choose to just feel very blessed, which isn't a word I use often, that I was able to hit that finish line at Boston and have it give me other opportunities. What is it like for you to return to the race now? You're going to run it this year. You ran Boston on the 50th anniversary of your win. You ran it in 2014. I don't know how many times you've lined up there since you won it in 1968. You're also a New Englander like I am, so the Boston Marathon does hold a very special place for all runners who are from that area, but I'd love to learn from you what it's like when you go back because you have such a history with it. You know what it's like very honestly and very candidly? It's a totally individual athletic struggle to run the Boston Marathon course. I'm not trained for it these days. I have to plan smart. I have to get in a little bit of training. The actual race day takes up all of my focus for days beforehand. Uh, I am not well known in the Boston crowd these days because it was so long ago that I was in that position and even at Runner's World. So when I go to Boston, uh, I go to run a race, a very hard race. And if I'm lucky, I get two or three friends to accompany me and we kind of take care of each other along the course. I enjoy the memories, definitely. I have a, a few traditions now. Uh, I actually run with a little business card that I hand out to the kids along the course, which really says, thank you for being Boston Marathon fans. It's you, the fans, who have come to the sidelines for so many years that this make this the great event that it is and when I get to the finish line and I hope I will get there in October uh, in the last segment of the race I kind of turn around and walk backwards across the finish line applauding those who are coming towards me and still streaming into their Boston finish because uh, it is so much about the individual efforts of 30 or 35,000 of us and only a handful get the, the plaudits and the headlines and the interviews and the money and all of that. But I now love the fact that it's this personal, individual, athletic running 
challenge, and it takes all my focus to make sure I get there. What are you most looking forward to about this year's event, which will take place in October for the first time? I'm most looking forward to finishing because, as I said, I know there are going to be some hard moments out there. I'm looking forward to seeing people all along the course, uh, cheering for all of us. I'm looking forward to finding a couple of other folks to run with, and I, I don't have them now, but I will find them along the course because I'm a friendly sort of runner and I will say hello and even introduce myself to people who look like they would have a good time running my pace and we'll share it together. And there are, I'm now part of a actually international group of 75-year-old Boston Marathon guys and a bunch of them will be running in October and if I find one or two who are running at my pace then I'm sure we will run to carry the flag of the 75-year-old crew. To rewind back to the end of your collegiate career, when you won the Boston Marathon in 1968, how are you thinking about your life moving forward at that point, both athletically and professionally? After winning the Boston Marathon, I had no thought that there could be an athletic life afterwards. There wasn't. There was nobody I knew who was making a dime through running. There was no shoe sales or Gatorade sales or bars. There was nothing. You could not think about making a, a, a living in running, and so you had to find another profession. A lot of the people I knew in the New England running scene, including John J. Kelly, were school teachers. So I thought, aha, uh, maybe I can be a school teacher. 1968, when I graduated, was a year with the Vietnam War draft. And I was not eager over that prospect. And it turned out, unbelievably enough, that teaching elementary school was a draft deferrable job in 1968. So I went to my local board of education and I said, when they called me, I said, hey guys, how about giving me three months off to go to the Olympic trials where I failed miserably because I was injured, but they said fine. And then they called me out back after I failed in August and they said, we want you. And I said, yeah, but I've got this job here with the public school system teaching elementary school. And they said, oh, fine, you're clear, you can go home. So uh, that was a big sigh of relief. Uh, I taught elementary school for five years and kind of loved it. It may have been the thing that I was best at because, as I mentioned at the beginning, my father was a YMCA type of guy. And I never learned anything from my father about how to drive a nail into a piece of wood or change a spark plug or anything useful. Uh, but I learned how to hang out with kids and play with kids. And I, and I loved kids. And I loved teaching. I taught sixth grade for five years. And uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. I probably would have continued it for life. But that's when Runner's World came a calling, and it was impossible not to say yes to Runner's World. What did you study at Wesleyan? 
I studied psychology. It was just something that seemed interesting. It was mm-hmm. uh, not a passion. Believe me, I was a you know a B student at, at Wesleyan. There were many many brilliant kids there then, as there are now. Uh, I studied hard. I worked hard. All I did was run and study and prepare for classes. As I as I say to people, I went to school in the '60s. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, and I had no part of any of those scenes because I was going to bed at 9:30 at night, getting up at 6:30, and going out for my first run of the day. Uh, so I was serious. I was serious about my studies. I was serious about running, uh, but I was not passionate about my studies at that point. It was not what I threw myself into. I threw myself into running. Tell me more about how the runner's world opportunity came to be and when it was offered to you, what your initial thoughts about it were. Runner's world, uh, of course, was... um, Let's call it a, a two-bit publication out in Palo Alto in the in the early 70s. But then in 1977, 1978, things happened, which everyone has debated ever since, and nobody knows the answer. But uh, things such as Jim Fix's complete book of running, things like Frank Shorter's two medals in the Olympic marathon on TV, things like. Bill Rogers winning all the races all over Boston and New York for a number of years. And there was this unbelievable surge in interest in running in the United States. And the Runner's World Circulation Chart chart then literally was like a rocket. It just went straight up. And suddenly the publication was making a little bit of money and wanted to make more money. Uh, it realized that there was a lot of running on the East Coast and there were a lot of businesses on the East Coast and wanted to have a voice in New England. I was not a trained journalist. I had written only one or two articles for Runner's World or for one of Hal Higdon's running books in that time. But uh, I was, I could string a couple of words together. I knew running. I thought long and deep about all aspects of running. And in my entire journalistic career, I never tried to do anything except to paint an authentic picture of what running was like for each of us as as individuals. I was never hyper-exaggerated about any of the aspects of running, whether it was diet or shoes or even training but uh, tried to be really realistic and grounded in conveying what I perceived to be running. Who was reading Runner's World at the time? In the, in the 1970s, the, the readers were all sub-three-hour Boston Marathon runners, almost literally no women, which was not because... Runner's World didn't appeal to women. It was because running didn't appeal to women. And there were none but the uh, early pioneers, the Bobby Gibbs and Catherine Switzers and Jacqueline Hansons and Jonies and so on and so forth. In the 1970s, if you went to the late 70s, if you went to a cocktail party, everybody who had taken up running a month before 
was already running 70 miles a week. It was like 70 miles a week was just the basic entrance level of, of running, and everybody was doing that. Uh, we didn't even talk about injuries back in the 70s. I didn't know anybody who ever got injured. We just ran and didn't get injured. Of course, as you get a lot more runners into the field, and some of them were not biomechanically or orthopedically built for running, we started to learn about running, injuries, and shoes, and maybe some people had to do something called cross-training instead of running 14 times a week, and so on and so forth. There was a lot of learning that we all had to do in the late 70s and early 80s through the running boom to uh, not just continue what we had always said about running, which was, you know, run like Ron Hill, run every day, run 100 miles a week, and run a 209 marathon. Uh, there are other ways of running that were a lot more appropriate for the people who were starting to pick up runner's world, and we tried to adapt to them. When did your perception of what a runner was, what a runner looked like, what a runner did start to shift? It was evolutionary, uh, of course. Uh, I can't pinpoint it right now, but clearly uh, there was a change in running in the after the mid-80s. The first half of the 80s were really fast, and there were a couple of those years at Boston. I think it was 83 when everybody ran under 220 or 230 or whatever it was. But that didn't last for, for a long time, and... Uh, by the mid-90s, I think people were modifying and getting slower and thinking, you know, what's the point of running 90 miles a week to run 259 or 309 if I could run 30 miles a week to be fit and have a family and go to work and all the other things that, that life entails. And then, of course, uh, I often talk about the two pivotal, what I think were the two pivotal women's running events Joni wins the Olympic marathon in 1984, which is the biggest, wildest celebration any of us could possibly imagine to have a much beloved New England runner run so spectacularly and win the Olympics. But women's running doesn't happen after Joan wins. W women's running begins to happen 10 years later, which is after Oprah Winfrey runs the Marine Corps Marathon in four and a half hours. And I've never claimed that the two were cause and effect. Uh, I don't know what caused women's running to take off, but the Oprah Winfrey message uh, was big and powerful and reached a lot of people. And it said, you don't have to look like Frank Shorter with 3% body fat. You don't have to run 100 miles a week. You don't have to have a lot of other things. But you can still be healthy and run a marathon and have it be a huge personal uh, achievement. And that's, that's what Oprah did. I, I happened to run most of the race, 23 miles with her that day because I was just in town at a talk at a clinic, and I thought, if Oprah's running, so am I, because <laughs> I'm from Runner's World and i got to cover this. So I was out there with a phalanx of reporters from the National Enquirer who only wanted Oprah to die on the course so they could get photographs of her demise, and uh, we tailed Oprah. And 
I have never seen another runner have to run a marathon with 5,000 people come up to them and clap them on the back and say, Oprah, we're glad you're out here. Oprah, love your show. Oprah, have a good one. Oprah, you're an inspiration. And she had to put up with all that crap and still run a marathon. And she did it that day. And it was, I think, really a courageous thing for her to go out in a public space and put herself into a marathon. Were you at Runner's World when the publication put her on the cover? Because as far as media coverage of the sport goes, I know that was a very seminal moment. And it's still, I think, to this day, the most popular Runner's World cover of all time. I don't want to say it was 100% my decision to put Oprah on the cover, but it was 99% my decision to put Oprah on the cover. I was scared crapless because we had never, ever put anyone like Oprah on the cover. 0.1% of our readers were large black women uh, or black men. And uh, the biggest bean counters at Runner's World at the magazine company were the guys who counted the success of each month's newsstand sales. Everything else got tallied up by the year and all it washed in and out, good and bad. But the newsstand sales were tallied up every month and they'd come after us and say, why didn't you guys sell more copies last week? Why did you screw up the cover? Why did you do such and such and put so-and-so on the cover? And that's what bean counters do. So I thought Oprah had a fairly good chance of selling less than any magazine we had ever put out onto newsstand. And it did the opposite. It sold more than any magazine we had ever put onto newsstand. So it, uh, it struck a bell with someone. Uh, I don't have personal interviews with all those people who bought it, but something about Oprah drew people in rather than turning them off. And so it was, uh, uh, it was a wonderful thing for us to, uh, to do it. And a couple of weeks later, while I was out running at lunchtime, unfortunately, she called my phone and left a voicemail. I wasn't there. And she said, uh, Ambie, thank you for putting me on the cover of all the magazine covers I've ever done. That was my favorite ever up to that time. In the time that we have left here, I want to come back to something we touched on at the beginning of this conversation. And I think what we had just talked about is a very good segue for it, but how the running media landscape has evolved over the past 10, 20, 30 years. The obvious part of that is the shift toward digital media today. We're seeing less magazines on the newsstand. I think Runner's World has gone to four times a year or six times a year. Uh, competitor, where I used to work, has gone away completely. Other publications aren't coming out quite as frequently. Online, there are a ton of websites for you know, Runner's World still exists. You've got Podium Runner, which used to be competitor. You've got Trail Runner. You've got I Run Far. You've got new publications like Sidious Mag. You have a ton of you know independent creators such as myself who are covering the sport in different ways. But I'd love to get your perspective on all of it as someone who was in pretty early days at Runner's World, spent a lot of time there, was there during its, its heyday, but who is still involved today to varying degrees. You ask a question that I and all of my friends ask almost uh, every day, and I can give you a perspective, uh, a brief one. Certainly, I don't have any answers. There was, 
the good part of runner's world in the 1980s or 1990s was that it was the single lightning bolt publication that everybody read. And if runner's world was doing a good job, then it spread good information to everyone and it focused people on important topics like what are we doing to increase opportunities for women runners? What are we doing to increase opportunities for masters runners? Uh, what are we doing to make running a health and fitness sport as well as just an Olympic sport? And those were all very important and Runner's World covered them and everybody read it and talked about what we said. Now you've got a thousand or 10,000 or however many running media there are, some mm -hmm. better than others, and I'm not going to make any qualitative judgments because I don't know. I'm fascinated by many of them. I don't understand the economics of almost any of them because I know why Runner's World survived economically and those conditions simply don't exist now. Uh, circulation revenue and advertising revenue are both really, really hard to get. So I don't know how or why so many people are putting so much effort into running media. It's a great thing for the consumer if you can find the particular publication or podcast or newsletter that you like. You focus on those one or two, and uh, it's wonderful because you're getting a lot of stuff for free, pretty much. Uh, if you're trying to gauge the overall world of running, it's hard to distinguish the purely promotional, empty kinds of publications that are basically just trying to sell an ad with uh, the better, more authoritative ones. But, you know, we're consumers. We have to learn to, to be good judge, judges and good critics and to select what's best with us. I think runners are very bright and perceptive for the most part and for the most part will make good decisions about where they choose to find their running media. Do you think the proliferation of current running media almost waters down the entire space a little bit and makes it harder to sift through the good and the bad to find the stuff that is really valuable? I, I do, and that's what I was saying when Runner's World, Love It or Hate It, was was the, the place that you went and you got your information. Now, I do think it's watered down. I know I can't keep up, and I, I spend a fair amount of time trying to keep up, as you do. And I, I can't imagine how anyone keeps up who is, you know, not professionally involved in the sport and just trying to get some training or nutrition or whatever advice they're, they're looking for. And, of course, there are no censors or very few on the Internet, so buyer beware for sure. I, uh, I hope... Uh, the, the sport could use a, a more central location now. It really could. Uh, World Athletics, of course, is trying to do so much, uh, but that's elite competition. Other people are largely following the elite athletes because that's the easiest thing to follow, and they're exciting, and who doesn't want to root for someone who might win an Olympic gold medal? But the gold medalists aren't really the heart of the sport. The heart of, heart of the sport are the people who are just doing it day in and day out and, and trying to stay uh, fit, healthy, happy. 
uh, and involved and, and motivate others. We all, you know, we all have plenty of other people that we need to get moving too. How do you think about your place in this greater ecosystem at this point of your life? I don't think about my place now, and I'm not sure I have ever thought about my place. I, I, I believe I have been a voice for moderation. I don't think I have gone off the deep end uh, too often one way or another. I have uh, strong opinions on some of the flashpoint subjects uh, of our day, like the uh, transgender athletes and DSD and runners with prosthetics and all of that. But I don't have answers. I don't know where the sport and society is headed. And for the most part, I have... um, I have always cultivated friends among the running scientists and the running authorities and the PhDs, and they're not the last word and the best word on everything, but they're often a good word on a uh, core approach to the sport, and uh, that's, that's where I've tried to stay. I hate to say I'm a centrist because that sounds really boring, but for the most part, uh, I'm a middle-of-the-road kind of guy trying to find simple, consistent, workable solutions. Well, as someone who's followed your work for quite some time, I think you do a great job of that, and it's something that I really admire, respect, and try to emulate myself. Thank you so much, Mario. You are now writing a newsletter as well. I subscribed to it a couple months back. I enjoy getting it every week. It's called Run Healthy, Run Long. You're doing it for Podium Runner. What is that, let's call it an experiment, been like for you to write in that way? I mean, newsletters are kind of all the rage now. I've had mine almost six years. There's more than I can possibly keep up with at this point. But I do enjoy getting yours every week. And I know it's a newish thing for you. And I, I'd love to just learn a little bit more about how it came to be and you know how you're thinking about it. Sure. So I think I started it in January or February, and it came to be because I realized I was spending all day looking at these dozens and dozens of different studies on running and fitness and health and not writing anything about them because I didn't really have a place to write about them, and they weren't all worthy of a thousand words. They maybe just needed a brief summary. Uh, So I thought it would be fun to see if I could cobbled together a newsletter on my own, and I did that for a couple of months, even though I barely have the skills to work uh, chip monkey or whatever it's called that I was trying <laughs> to uh, to uh, put it into. A- and then uh, my good friend Jonathan Beverly, who I admire a lot, he's one of the uh, honest, authoritative guys in the sport, in the editorial end of the sport for sure said, hey, Podium Runner would like to take over your newsletter and we'll do all the work and you can just do the editorial and we'll pay you a little bit. So, uh, you know, I wasn't making anything before. Jonathan's taking the work away and I'm getting paid a little bit. So that's a pretty pretty good solution for me and uh, I'm happy with it now. I spend way too much time on the thing each month trying to find new and different stuff from what everybody else is finding, but uh, that's part of the curiosity that is part of me, and so I'm still enjoying it. 
Last question. What's exciting you about running right now? Hitting 75 is exciting me. The fact that I'm going to run hood to coast on a team of runners who are all over 75 is very exciting. Several of them are elites like Gene Dykes. So they're going to be people much faster than me on the team, but we're all going to be together and there's never been a team that old at hood to coast. That's exciting. Going back to run Boston in October is such a novel, ridiculous, silly idea that I would, <laughs> could never have considered except for what the pandemic has wrought for all of us that, uh, you know, how do you say no to Boston in October? I, I will not be trained. I know today I will not be trained for the Boston Marathon, but I do hope that I'll be fit and strong enough to go the distance at my my best pace for that day. And I'm very, very much looking forward to that. I love it. Ambie, I've loved this conversation and I thank you so much for coming on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Mario, it's a, it's a great fun chatting with you and you do a fantastic job with this podcast. It's one of the few I listen to almost every week. Thank you so much for listening in to the Morning Shakeout podcast. A big thank you to both Tracksmith and Gooder for making this episode possible. Tracksmith crafts performance running apparel, inspiring publications, and distinct experiences that allow runners to indulge in the sports-rich culture. Check out Tracksmith's summer essentials for racing and training, including the Strata Tee. It's the most lightweight and breathable running shirt that I've ever worn. Tracksmith is offering new customers $15 off your first purchase of $75 or more. Just use the code MARIO15, that's MARIO15, when you check out at tracksmith.com slash MARIO. Gooder sunglasses are just the best. I've been wearing them for the past few years, and they don't bounce, they don't slip, and they're polarized to protect your eyes. They come in a nice range of styles and fun colors, and they're the most affordable performance shades on the planet, with most pairs coming in at just 25 to 35 bucks a piece. If you want to support the podcast and treat yourself to a pair of Gooders, head over to Gooder.com slash Mario or enter the code Mario at checkout to save 15% off your order. Your face will thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and encourage your friends and followers to subscribe to the show. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. A couple more things before we wrap up. I'd like to give a shout out, as always, to my longtime producer, John Summerford, who makes every episode of the podcast sound clear and amazing. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for running the AM Shakeout social media accounts and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. Last thing, if you are digging this podcast, I think you'll love my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout, and you can subscribe to it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Every Tuesday morning, you'll get my take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to. It's a quick read, five, 10 minutes tops, but it will give you plenty to think about throughout the rest of the week. Again, you can sign up to receive it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. <laughs>